0: This is Howard Bloom. I'm the author of seven books, and uh, if you believe them, uh, Channel 4 TV in Britain has called me the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Ford of the 21st century. I'm going to be discussing some absolutely mind-blowing topics with Dove Baron. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome back to another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. This episode is brought to you in part by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the the Awesome Music Project campaign will go to music and mental health research initiatives. You can find out about this beautiful uh, Awesome Music Project, coffee table book. It's really beautiful. In the usual places like Amazon or wherever your bookstores are, the book features amazing stories from outstanding people like Chris Hatfield, the, the astronaut, and award-winning artists like Michael Bublé, Sarah McLaughlin, and even, I'm even fortunate enough that they featured a guy called Doug Barron in there too, The Awesome Music Project or The Amp Foundation. You can find out about all of them at theawesomemusicproject.com. Okay, this is part two, I want to welcome back our fabulous guest, the... Legend himself, Mr. Howard Bloom. He's the guy who built the largest PR agency for music ever known. Um, he has lectured in in universities. He's written four hundred and seventy thousand books. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but it's almost like that because one of them so big, it's uh, it's becoming an, a massive archive. Uh, he's lectured at Princeton. He's lectured all over the place, and he's worked with. The best of the best, including Michael Jackson, uh, Bob Marley, ZZ Top, and any name you can think of it's probably going to be in his thing. So one of one of the questions that we, we, started, we started with and finished with, which was who was a person he'd met that was completely surprising, that he was deeply curious about, and it was Michael Jackson. Uh, Howard talked about how everything he'd been told was, this is a guy who lives in a bubble and he's not really accessible and he got to meet him firsthand and I said why and he said because he exemplified there was three things about him that really stood out for for Howard and that he was the exemplification of the first two laws of science so now we're going to find out what those other two pieces are and how Michael Jackson was in fact the personification of those two laws back to Howard Bloom
0: So we left off with Michael sitting on an amplifier and me sitting on another amplifier, my reading a a press release to him, Michael going, oh, oh, and slowly slumping down the amplifier and finally saying, man, that's beautiful. Did you write that? And I confess that I had. Michael was the first one who ever saw all of the years of my life, more than half my life. That I'd put into the art of writing, not just the craft, the art. Right. Then we went downstairs. Um, we were supposed to have a meeting with the CBS art director to determine an artist to do the cover for the Jackson's Victory album.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: we're standing at the pool table. Michael and I, um, I'm standing at Michael's left. So my right uh, shoulder is up against his right sh- left shoulder. My uh, right elbow is up against his left elbow, and my right knee is up against his left knee because the brothers are crowding us together at the pool right. table. And the art director from CBS Records has just arrived. And she is carrying five of the most gorgeous portfolios you've ever seen in your life. I got into pop culture by starting a commercial art studio. I used to carry one of those portfolio portfolios. But even though my studio became the leading avant-garde commercial art studio on the East Coast, I carried a vinyl portfolio. These portfolios were carved cherry wood, um, hand-tooled leather, and they were from people that I knew for my art days as the kings of illustration, um, the reigning aristocracy of Mm -hmm. illustration. And the art director shoved the first portfolio across the the green of the pool table. And it was from a guy named Michael Whalen. And Michael opened the page, the first page, so that all he could see was a square inch. And Michael went, oh, and his knees began to buckle. I could feel it because my knees were up against his knees. He opened another three square inches. Oh, 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 oh. Michael Jackson had the only aesthetic orgasm I have ever seen in my life. It was astonishing. You know the poem by William Blake about seeing the infinite and the tiniest of things? I was watching that. That was one of my principles. That's the second law of science, the the law of awe, wonder, and surprise. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. You could clearly feel in your body that Michael was seeing the infinite in an inch. He was seeing more in this illust- an inch of this illustration than the artist had ever seen. It was fucking astonishing. I had never seen anything like it in my life. I would never see anything like it again, ever. Um, so, so, hold on, Michael-
1: so when you
0: because I want everybody to get this as a picture. So
1: you're standing there, one inch of the page is revealed of the artwork. Right. And Michael is already in complete awe. So he's seeing what others certainly what others are not seeing. But it's it's interesting for me because he's he's present with that. He's right. not waiting for you know. Like, okay, open it up. Let's have a look. He's you know, he's not in the rush, he's in the present of that one inch and being blown away by it, and then three inches and be even more ecstatically blown away from it. So that the willingness to be not only um, in this state of deep curiosity and awe with the thing, but to be totally and absolutely present.
0: Right. That was one of his gifts. That was one of his gifts. But I Look, you know, I've worked with all kinds of people. The 11th president of India, who was a visionary and one of a superstar in Asia. Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon. All kinds of people. Newt Gingrich, of all people, I'm working with. Um, and I've never seen anything hmm. like what I saw and felt standing next to Michael at that pool table looking at that piece of art. And then I went back to New York to my office. I had a desk the size of an aircraft hanger with seven Rolodexes on it. And behind me, up against the wall, I had a $19.99 red a nylon knapsack. And it had a TRS-1000, the very first laptop computer, and a spare razor, uh, a toothbrush, and a spare shirt. Why? because of incidents like this, I got a call at four o'clock in the afternoon. The voice on the other end said, you've got to be out here by 11 o'clock tonight. Michael is canceling his tour. You're the only one he will listen to. Um, And I mean, why? Why would Michael listen to me? We shared that fucking ecstatic element.
1: Hmm.
0: We shared it. Uh, Apparently no one around him had ever grocked it had ever understood it at a fundamental gut level and i could feel it in my gut and when apparently that,
1: when you saw that and you you know you were, you you were english term you were gobsmacked by seeing somebody get that right do you think that you know i mean when you think about the other people in that room right and how they were at Michael being that way, do you think they were thinking that's just Michael is weird? And do you think that Michael was aware that you were getting it in a different way than even his brothers?
0: Well, he seemed to be aware that I was getting it. I mean, we had another incident. Um, I was talking to the NAACP and they were in a big voter registration campaign And they wanted to set up voter registration booths at each of the upcoming Victory Tour concerts. And Mm -hmm. I was not only all for it, but I had explained to the brothers that they must pay special attention to their Black base. Because if they didn't, their Black base would feel that they were being abandoned, and they would turn on the Jacksons and try to destroy them with the same eagerness with which they had helped build them. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was essential to stay in tune with that base. Now, Michael's religion forbade having anything to do with anything electoral, Mm -hmm. any kind of politics. So, Michael, this was against Michael's religion to set up these voter booths. But I knew they had to be set up if Michael was going to achieve what he wanted to achieve with his audience.
1: What was his faith at that time?
0: Uh, Seventh-day Adventist or something yeah, like that, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses day
1: event, uh, but he later on became a Muslim
0: I don't know, I, I never Briefly. followed, yeah, I didn't get to follow that okay. aspect of his career so one way or the other despite the fact that everybody was terrified about bringing this to Michael um, because they were sure it's against his religion, his mother is going to disapprove, his mm-hmm. mother was a very strong force Um Michael said, yes, he understood the reason. So apparently it wasn't just that I got Michael's awe, wonder, and surprise. Um, it was some, in some other way, Michael understood that we were in tune. And that's why the last sentence of that phone call was, you're the only one he will listen to. Hmm. Um, so sure enough, I was in LA by 11 o'clock that night. I was at a big studio lot, which are these buildings the size of aircraft hangars that just swallow the light. And in the darkness, they look like dead dinosaurs. It's an an eerie experience. And only one of them was lit. Um, And even then, the building was so big that the lighting was just swallowed up. Um, And I walked in and there was a 110 foot stage and the Jacksons were rehearsing for their victory tour. Now, to understand the scope of a 110 foot stage, when ZZ Top decided to take Texas culture to the world and had the mayor of Houston name me the ambassador of Texas culture to the world, they had a stage, the the shape of the state of Texas and it was deliberately gargantuan and it was 75 feet wide. The Jacksons was like 50% larger,
1: 110
0: feet. So so I watched them rehearse on this massive stage. And then parked outside, there's a dressing trailer. And you've probably been in a dressing trailer. It's a great big van, huge van, um, that's set up as a dressing room. Yeah. So when it was all over, all of us, the brothers, Michael and I, walked into this dressing trailer. Now, the dressing tailor had two banquets of seats, like restaurant seats, red vinyl, facing each other, and then a little banquet of seats right next to the entrance, and that was the throne. So the brothers flanked us, Michael took the throne, I took the seat to Michael's immediate left hand. And Michael explained something. He explained that he had been given this quality of all wonder and surprise by God. Hmm. And because he had been given that by God, this quality of infinite aesthetic orgasm we've been talking about, um, he owed that to his audience. Now, the critics had been tearing this tour apart. They had said, we know everybody in the business. Michael has not hired anybody that we know. He, <laughs> he has not hired the staging people we know, so the stage is going to collapse. He has not hired any of the sound people we know. So the sound system is going to electrocute the performers. He has not hired any of the lighting people wow. we know. So these lighting towers four stories high are going to collapse on the heads of the audience. And he has not hired any security people we know. So there are going to be gangs rubbing, running up and down the aisles with knives slicing up your children. Oh um, my God! And that was the common word in the press at that right. point. And I didn't understand why, but remember, it was part of that malevolent force that I had sensed when I first saw the Jacksons up against the wall, literally. Um, And um, so Michael explained that in order to give kids the quality of surprise that he had, which by now I had a visceral sense of, um, he hired the best people in the business, He made them all sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. He signed them all to secrecy so that the tour would come as an utter and complete surprise to his audience. Right, Because that's what he owed his audience. He had that quality of orgasmic surprise. He owed that quality of orgasmic surprise to his audience. And all of a sudden it became clear why this thing was an easy target for the press. The non-disclosure. So
1: so he was. He was, in fact, trying to convey, at least, an element of what it was like to live in his world, where in that awe and that surprise and that wonder. So that if you were at a Michael Jackson or the Jacksons um, event, you would be wowed, not just in the the big sense of wow, but in the intimate sense of wow
0: in the intimate sense of wow and in the universal sense of yeah of awe um it was the universe it was a, it, it it was a, an awe and surprise that hopefully would refresh your entire view of everything around you which is what uh, james burke did for you and me yeah um we were discussing yeah, because it's it
1: interesting if, when we look at this at a quantum level and even at a neurological level that experience is often uh, uh, in psychedelics is often termed as a reset. Right, right. It's that it's that bursting out of awe, you know, out of the normal into the awe-inspiring. That when you come back into something that resembles the normal, nothing can be the same. There's been exactly. a reset. Yeah, and so it seems like Michael lived in this state of reset, which would be a very difficult place to live. I can understand that. But he was committed to delivering that reset as a performer for those he performed for.
0: Which is the highest form of art. That's what art is for, to utterly reshape your perceptions. Right. To push the bounds, to push the envelope of human perception in general um, so that we all are reformed. Uh, revived, uh, taken to a higher level. Um, That's what it's all about. Michael knew that. He might not be able to articulate it, but he certainly knew it. So Michael explained, we're still in the darkness. Michael is sitting on the Mm -hmm. throne bank hat, and I'm sitting at his immediate left. And Michael explained that his brother, Jackie, was the best dancer and choreographer he had ever seen in his life. Now, think about that statement for a minute. Michael Jackson was the ultimate student of dance. Mm -hmm. He had watched everybody from Fred Astaire to James Brown and learned from them to say that his brother, Jackie was the best dancer he'd ever seen is an incredible statement. Now his brother, Jackie three weeks earlier had come down with a bone chip in his knee, which is something common to athletes. And I had flown out to the West coast to arrange the press conference at the hospital to explain it all. Um, And, the brothers thought that he would be ready. He would heal in time for the tour, but he wasn't healing as fast as they had hoped. And Michael explained without my look, I owe my audience this absolutely astonishing experience. I cannot create that without Jackie because Jackie is the best dancer in the world. Um, and I explained to Michael, your tour is being torn apart. Um, press has convinced the audience they should not send their children to a Michael Jackson concert because their children will be carved up, have the lighting system collapse on them. They won't come home alive. Um, And it was Dove, look, when I know a truth, I'm an utterly transformed person because that truth seizes me and I'm no longer talking. It's the truth that's talking. And Michael was the same. So as Michael tried to explain what he owed his kids, I had the first and only visual vision of my life. I've had a half a dozen visions, but all of them have been visceral without pictures, except this one. And I saw Michael's ribs as golden gates. And I saw those golden gates opening. And I saw 10,000 kids in Michael's chest. So each of us was acting as if we were Moses parting the Red Sea because each of us was telling his truth. If that makes any sense yeah. To you, um, it's an understated way so of putting what it.
1: What year was that? Would have that been?
0: 1984, I believe.
1: So I've got to ask the question because somebody's going to be asking it. We
0: are stoned. Oh, <laughs> of course not. No, I. <laughs> oh, of
1: course, I know that. <laughs> right. But that's what people are going to think, right? They're going to go to right? the 80s. This guy was wired on something, whatever he was on. I don't want any of that. But but this is this is the thing that people don't understand. I mean, I'm certainly I'm not I'm not condemning or condoning. I don't have any part of that, but there is an experience that people don't understand that is accessible to us called a state of awe. Right. That is accessible accessible to us. Certainly it can be. I, I've often said that I think that um psychedelics in whatever form they're in, you know, I read all the Leary stuff in the early days. I I, I believe and, and as Groff pointed out, that they are the they are the key to the lock that opens the door. But what's on the inside is all you. And right. and so some people use that key but there are other people who the door's not locked. (laughs) And Michael clearly was a person like that. And you were in that moment having that experience where the door was completely flung open and you're in this ecstatic experience where it's a visceral transformational experience that you're having with him. Is that correct? Is that a- Absolutely.
0: And it was what I've been aiming for since I was 10 with the first two rules of science. When I was 12, I became absolutely fascinated with the ecstatic experience and knew I had to bring it into science or science wouldn't be science yet. Remember the aspiration of science is omniscience. And that means looking at things right under your nose that other people aren't seeing. Um, And these realms of the human spirit, they're vital. If you're gonna understand science, science is gonna be complete. So Michael listened to what I had to say And he changed his mind. So they were right, whoever was calling me. I was the only person Michael would listen to. But then I became a danger to the people trying to grab hold of Michael's money and power, Uh. because I was the only one he would listen to. And so they worked for the next six months to separate Michael and me, which they did successfully. But it's one of my great regrets in life because Michael, I've been having interior conversations with Michael for the rest of my life since then. Michael represented everything that my that I aspired to, um, even though he wasn't a scientist. Look at his level of comprehension; it was astonishing, stunning. It
1: was, and and so we we come to just because I, I feel like we have to go there. Uh, the Netflix special, you know, that came up around the, the sexual molestation. And, and I'm going to tell you my bias and it's totally right. my bias. Cause I didn't know Michael Jackson, never met him, but I, I'm like, you know, I, part of my skill is I see people. That's one of the things that people will say, you know, I, it's weird. You see me.
0: Right. Um,
1: and when Michael Jackson was accused of what he was accused of and Somebody asked me, they said, Do you think he did it? And I said, Do I think Michael Jackson slept in a bed with another child? Absolutely yes. Do you think Michael Jackson was sex? Do I think Michael Jackson was sexually inappropriate um, with a kid? Yes, but only in the way another seven year old would be interested in another seven year old. Do I think it was an act of sexual orientation? Absolutely not. I don't think he had that in him. In my mind, there were two Michael Jacksons. There was the performer uh, who, and that that was just one aspect of him. So this performer who was aware, had a way of thinking that was very different than others. And as a result was an incredible businessman outbidding, you know, uh, Paul McCartney on his own music. And, you know, he he had that vastness to his thinking, but it is basic. Because I understand psychology He was so stalled in his his psychological development that he was a kid trying to play and he wanted other kids to play with. And I don't, this is my bias, as I said, and I don't think that that even would have crossed his mind. And I don't think it would have crossed his mind that it was inappropriate because that would have required him to be emotionally developed enough in, in the traditional way we think psychological development at maturity for him to recognize that. I don't think he did.
0: I'd like to, my bias. I agree with you totally. And let me give you some things that will back you up. Okay. Um, The man who was the greatest researcher on uh, the neurobiology of human emotion in the 20th century is named Jacques Panksepp and who made a pilgrimage to this apartment um, while I was stuck in bed for 15 years, among other things. And Jacques noticed that rats, baby rats, for a certain period of their life, play with each other. And he wondered if there was something equivalent to sleep deprivation when it came to play. In other words, whether there would be play deprivation if you prevented a baby rat from playing with other baby rats. So he did just that. Mm. Um, He separated the rats during their period of play so they couldn't play with each other. And then he brought them back together when they were adults. Well, guess what? Panksepp's hypothesis that there was a play deprivation, a certain period of time that rats needed to go through play, was absolutely on target. Absolutely on target. There was play deprivation. Michael Jackson never had a chance to be a child. No. He started rehearsing with his brothers when he was six years old. He was performing on stages professionally when he was nine years old. He didn't have a childhood. So his love of his kids was profound because that through them, he got to experience the childhood that he never got to experience. I'm only saying what you've said in different terms, mm-hmm. but providing some backing. So one day, we're doing a photo shoot. And the Jacksons is about 110 miles north of L.A. on the, on the beach. And the Jacksons have trucked in Lamborghinis, Lotuses, the most gorgeous cars, Maseratis you've ever seen in your life for the photo shoot. But it's taking a long time to set this thing up. So all the brothers have dressing trailers, and they're all in their dressing trailers waiting for the shoot. Michael is not. This is a little piece of park, and it's separated from non-park by these bare wooden log railings so and and there are a bunch of kids kids 10 years old hanging out at one of the log railings michael spends his entire time with those kids now another thing about michael's bedroom michael's bedroom was not a private place it was not like your bedroom and mine cuz michael was constantly the center of attention So another client of mine, Lionel Richie, was tapped to co-write a song with Michael, We Are the World.
1: We Are the World. Raise
0: money for the starving kids in Ethiopia. And Lionel, so Lionel explained that he and Michael are laying on the rug in Michael's bedroom, passing lyrics back and forth. And all of a sudden, Lionel feels eyes staring at him off to his right, at his eye level height when he is laying on the floor. So he slowly turns his head, and what does he see? Um, Michael's pet boa constrictor, muscles, sizing him up for lunch. Um, So that's Michael's bedroom. It's a public place.
1: Right.
0: And when Michael has kids there, one of the greatest thrills of childhood is the sleepover yep and and you you have a friend over and you can stay up until dawn talking it is so wildly exciting so michael had sleepovers and you've intuited all of this um of precisely this kind now i will never know whether michael was sexually inappropriate or not But my suspicion is not. And here's another little story that helps illuminate what you were talking about. Once upon a time, Billy Joel, who loved Myers Motorcycles, was on his motorcycle, motorcycling out on Long Island. He's going down a road toward a green light. He's doing the speed limit, 45 miles an hour. What do you do when you see a green light? Do you just keep going through, or do you stop? You go through. through. That's what the green light means. And that means that the driver, Patty Corner to you um, has got a red light. Yes. And what is she supposed to do? Stop, She's supposed please. to stop. Hopefully. Right? But there was a car coming down the road, perpendicular or whatever this is called, at 90 degree angle to Billy. And instead of stopping, it went through the red light to make a left turn. Mm-hmm. Billy slammed on his brakes, and the brakes simply wasn't braking distance. So he slammed into this car and flew over it and landed on the other side. And it looked like, first of all, the the driver, a 27 year old woman jumped out of her car, incredibly distressed. She thought that she had killed this anonymous motorcyclist. So the first worry was, is he alive? The second worry was his right hand. Something was terribly wrong with his right hand. Now, Billy Joel wrote the song Piano Man for a reason. He is most alive when he is pounding on the keys in front of an audience. Remember, Billy Joel was another client of mine. Yep. However, apparently, the woman driving the car that went through the red light went to her attorney, and her attorney said, wait a minute, here. you don't understand what you've just done. You've just hit the jackpot. Um, This guy's a superstar. If you claim that he was in the wrong and he hit you, which of course he did, um, then that can be negative headlines all over the country. And if we go to him and make this proposition to him, he is going to buy you off to keep you quiet. So this thing doesn't make negative headlines for him. So that's what they did. They got $250,000 in settlement in the days when $250,000 was not pennies anymore um and guess what was happening to michael the women the mothers of these kids that michael were meeting tended to be from really fucked up relationships right and they were single and they were desperate for money And how do you get money? Well, the first woman who brought one of these accusations of sexuality against Michael got a $23 million settlement. Wow. Now, remember, monkey see, monkey do. Humans follow a pattern. Once a pattern's been set, others follow it. And this was an easy way to money. So is Michael likely to have been sexually diddling these kids? We don't know. Mm-hmm. But there are many 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 bits of evidence that indicate that you are precisely right in your analysis. This
1: is the this is the challenge with a litigious um, society is that it's It doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. What matters is how much money you have. And as a result, very famous people um, pay fines and don't go to jail. And poor people go to jail for the rest of their lives. And on the other side of that, um, somebody can be so worked because they have money, uh, because they just can't tolerate the frustration of having to deal with their name being dragged through the even though they've done nothing. It's Well it's look at Michael. Michael was the
0: Michael, I agree with everything you've just said. Michael was the closest thing to a saint I've ever seen on earth. He represented divinity. Literally, he was he had an element of the divine in him. What's the divine? The divine is not a god. It no. is not a supernatural something. It is an aspiration and a possibility within us. It's an emotional capacity within us. Mm -hmm. And Michael represented it more profoundly than any other human I have ever, ever, ever met in my life. But for 25 years of his life, Michael Jackson was becoming Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And for 25 years of his life, Michael Jackson was dangling on the cross. Um, He was a victim of torture. Think how a person who is the embodiment, the incarnation of the truth in any price, including the price of your life, and look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, and then proceed from there. And a third imperative, in Michael's case, give those qualities of astonishing perception to as many kids as you possibly can. Think of how, for a person like that in particular, being accused of sex with children, and becoming not a symbol of good, which you aspire to be, it's what you feel you were born for, um, but being robbed of that ability to convey yeah, that see, goodness to, see, that's, to the that's kids what you I need to about, save.
1: About the dysfunction of it is because the dysfunction of it is, is I th- I know, psychologically, people have a great way of sabotaging themselves, we can get into that as a separate subject but the the w- this sense of this man as you said that you saw so much good in who wanted to bring and that this situation really put the kibosh on it and said you can't you can't deliver your gift like for me when i look at uh, what's his name uh oh he played the president all the time in that tv series uh, and he was uh, sexual harassment gay what's his name
0: oh i can't remember having not watched any television for a long time
1: uh you would know exactly who he was in um, um uh american uh what is his name now oh my god i can see him too he was in the usual suspects he was the lead guy in the usual suspects anyway um you know i it'll come to me in a second, you know, won multiple Oscars, Kevin Spacey. Thank you. Yes. Kevin Spacey, multiple Oscars, you know, and was a, you know, behaved very badly. We know that there's enough evidence to, to make sure that's clear um, about a lot of things from a lot of different places. I don't know what's real, what's not real, but I, you know, it's, it's believable. Let's just put it that way right now. But, you know, I've talked about this with somebody recently and I was saying, but the most, difficult thing of all I can imagine is if his prison is that he can never perform his art again. He was a director. He was an actor. He was a writer. All that's gone away. All that has gone away. His name is poison and it's all gone away. And sometimes in, you know, in that case, the sense of egoic power is so big that it will suffocate out the divine gift of the creative, and that's so sad. Which may be the case. Maybe the case with Kevin Spacey. Again, I'm not the judge or the jury. Well, here's but, one of the
0: here's one of the reasons this is important, and it's in Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, a search for soul in the power pits of rock and roll, which really is about a search for soul. Yeah. Um. I give the example in the book of the guy who in 1954, in 1954, every sports physiologist knew a basic truth. Humans were not built to beat the four-minute mile. It simply couldn't be done. And a medical student in England and a friend of his who was another medical student started analyzing every move he made when he was running so that they could reduce all of the energy wasters and put that energy to forward motion. Um, and that guy beat the four-minute mile,
1: he did indeed. And
0: even though it was physiologically impossible. And since then, and, and what he did, he expanded the boundaries of human possibility. Um, how do we know that? Because since 1954, when he broke the four-minute mile, 1,800 other runners have broken the four-minute mile, it is taken as an automatic when you are an international competition class runner that you have broken the four minute mile.
1: You won't but, even make it into the Olympics if you can't do a four minute mile. Yeah. You make so, it in, let
0: alone to compete, let alone win. Right. So this one guy expanded the bounds of human possibility. Michael Jackson is what he was. But not to running, to music, to the before. quality of astonishment. And the quality of astonishment is extremely important in leading the human race forward, upward, constantly.
1: So let's no. stop there because that's the end of this, the second part. And I, I wanna talk about that this sense of astonishment and bringing that sense of awe to the world in order to evolve humanity. Because and I want to see- tell you the
0: story of uh, an artist I work with named Bill Chinnick and how it relates to Michael Jackson.
1: Okay, fantastic. Because I want to talk about that, that bringing the ore and the inspiration to the world in order to evolve us. Because it seems, as we record this, that we are living in a time where ore is being, in my opinion, awe is being stripped away. We are... Um, normalizing and polarizing and, and bland everything. And I I feel like people are lost touch with that. And so I think it's a really important place for us to stop and come back in on, on the next part. Thank you, Howard Bloom. We'll be back (laughs) in a moment for you, dear listener. Remember that you can join in this conversation by going over to curiosity bites on facebook and you can join in this conversation about this show or any of our past shows we are excited to have you come over there this is a fabulous conversation with the man the myth the legend howard bloom we'll be back in the next part see you on the next click stay curious my friends stay curious